Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrel pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, it is not very often that we are joined by a guest host for the entire podcast. I would um, say... This is the first time, I think, right? I think actually we've done it with Austin Zimmerman, friend of the podcast. But an even bigger honor for saying that. (laughs) (laughs) An even bigger honor is to bring on my friend and my coworker at the Ringer MLB show, Michael Bauman, to do a state of labor in baseball. Michael, hello. Hi. You guys say it's an honor. We'll see what you guys think at the end of the podcast. (laughs) Because I'm in full off season form, my friends. (laughs) This is really just a part of my larger plan to take over the ringer MLB show or, or just start my, or, or poach you from, from the ringer and the have shadow, you be the third host. Yes, exactly. The shadow ringer MLB show. <laughs> just <Yeah>. say, <laughs> it's yours if you want it, man. Like, <laughs> well, I've always said that we should start a, a fake ringer podcast network called the fringer or something like that. The fringer. Where it's just the fringer. Yeah. Where it's just, um, <laughs> it's just me and fellow podcast producer, Craig doing imitations of every other podcast on the network. I feel like I could do Ringer MLB show pretty well. Ready? Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. <laughs> you don't have the accent right. It's I, I feel like so here's the thing. Like the problem with that is I I've probably caught up got a pretty easy voice and cadence to parody, particularly if you've listened to as much as uh, of me as Bobby has. But the easiest person to do is Bill. And that yeah. comes with its own yeah. set of um like I said at the beginning, we are we are gathered here to do a state of labor in baseball, and Michael has been um, nice enough to join us for it. Um, and Mark it, Normandin wasn't available, <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> well, actually, it's funny because we 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 tried to have Mark on to talk about minor leagues a few times, and the combined awfulness between Alex, me, and Mark with planning things and having free time is it has led to Mark not being a guest on this podcast quite yet. <laughs> Well, here I am just doing whatever Bobby Bobby tells me. That's like <laughs> my my approach to podcasting in general now. All right, let's start here. So I find it exceedingly weird that um, Nolan Arenado, Mookie Betts, and Chris Bryant are available in this offseason. Has this can you think of a time where players of this caliber, even even one or two players of this caliber, have been seemingly fully available um, to be plucked off teams that are in theory and contention. Cause to me, it's like there has been plenty of times where there have been superstars that have been traded from bumbling teams to better teams. But in this specific offseason, it's weird that there's three teams. I guess you could make the claim that the Rockies are not really one of those teams, but, but you could three, throw Lindor, Lindor in there too. in the Indians. Right, right. Exactly. I guess that makes it four, um, four teams that are ostensibly trying to compete and they have young superstars on their team that their fan bases love and that have not really presented any reason to be traded, all available for the taking. I mean, having done no research for this podcast, no, I cannot <laughs> name such a, a time off the top of my head. But I, so the let's leave Arenado out of this for a second because he's not exactly the same situation. But the other three, uh, Betts, Chris Bryant, Francisco Lindor, are all approaching free agency, and they're all on contending teams, teams that were set up to dominate their divisions for the foreseeable future and have decided to prioritize cost savings over winning. And when you look at it as winning is not the priority now, now it's essentially it's getting either getting under the the luxury tax threshold or in Cleveland's case, just cutting payroll as much as possible. Uh, If contention and winning are not the primary goal, then yes, putting these guys on the blocks makes perfect sense. It's the exact same logic that led the Pirates to to trade Garrett Cole a couple off seasons ago and trumpet the number of years of team control they've got back. I mean, it's not that's just this is the problem with labor and baseball. Well, it's one of the problems with labor and baseball right now is that, you know, as much as we laughed at 
and uh, George Steinbrenner or owners like him 20 years ago, uh, Artie Moreno giving the the contracts to CJ Wilson and Albert Pujols and Josh Hamilton uh, earlier this decade. That's the kind of ownership mentality that the current MLB financial system is built for. And that's not the kind of ownership we have in almost any case right now. And when you look at it through that lens, then these guys are going to be expensive or these guys are not going to be retained once they reach uh, their free agency period. So this is how you get the Boston Red Sox dangling one of the uh, three best players in baseball, five best players in baseball, uh, their best their best players since, I don't know, Manny Ramirez. Uh, you know, I don't know how far you have to go back for it. I mean, this is the other thing is like the, the Red Sox and Indians in particular. Who's the, what's the last time they had a player as good as um, as as good as Mookie Betts or Francisco Lindor. Like it's, it's been, they are literal once in a generation players for, for these teams. And they're, they've just decided, uh, you know, the Astros situation with Garrett Cole is similar, but it's not exactly analogous. Cause I think Cole was, was going to get out of there anyway, but, uh, they've just decided we're not going to try. We're not going to try to, to resign these, these players because it's too expensive and it sort of defeats the purpose, particularly of, uh, being the uh, the Red Sox or the Cubs, um, and I don't know, it's you just have to look at this through a situation. Of winning is not the most important uh, thing on the priority list anymore. Do you get this because, like, it's a fairly recent development? Like, really, in the last three or four or five years is when we've started to see this. I mean, it's been it's been bubbling up for quite a while now, and teams are always looking for market inefficiencies. But it feels like it's gotten very blatant in the last few years. Um, the longest the, last few years, yeah, you the could longest last few imagine. years. Surely. I mean, to the point where, like, four or five when when Chris Bryant was was held down for the first month of the season, people were like. Oh, so let's talk about this thing called service time manipulation. Like, what's that all about? And now it's just like a, it's like common parlance, right? So like, what is, what do you think the the lifespan is of this mentality until you get to a point where fans are actually able to turn around and say, hey, maybe, maybe we should keep Mookie Betts on the team. Like, do you think that like, just it, fans are so pro ownership of it. Like it's been beaten into them so much that that's just kind of where their heads are at and it's going to stay there for the foreseeable future. Yes. Um, I think Bleak. your average, your average American <laughs> consumer. So here's the thing. Your average American consumer is sort of reflexively anti-labor. They've been, uh, I mean, there's, there's essentially, this is a, a culture built on, I mean, you guys wanted the Ringer MLB show after dark. This is it. This is a culture <laughs> essentially built on the the prosperity gospel. And the idea, you know, the, I think it's the Mark Twain quote, right? About how we all think like millionaires because uh, we're, uh, we don't think of ourselves as poor. We think of ourselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires, even yeah. though it's never been harder to climb the, the economic ladder in the past, you know, 50 years or whatever. And that I think as that's a societal problem. And own, you know, an MLB ownership is maybe in the t- not in the top fifty most evil ways that that uh, or you know groups of people who are taking advantage of this. Um, and so I think there that has there has to be a, a broader societal change, and I think that is coming. Like we're seeing this with um, you know the uh, media un- uh, unionization, which is um, there's been a groundswell of that for uh, over the past five to ten years, and I think like. Our, not even 10 years, like five years. And there's, uh, I think as we get more people into the workforce, um, who have come of, you know, come of age since the great recession, uh, we're going to see the, I think the worker mentality change, but how, how big a groundswell that has to get to before it filters up to the people who are rich enough to own sports teams. I mean, to filter for that pressure to filter up. These people are impervious to embarrassment. I think if if some you look at somebody like Bruce Sherman, um, who, who uh, bought the Marlins, like that guy is too rich to feel shame, and so yeah. are, so are the overwhelming majority of sports owners. So I don't know when is this going to change. I think there's going to there will need to be some sort of tear it down moment. And barring that, you know, I doubt I'll live to. Uh, 
to see the the moment that this mentality is out of the upper echelon of pro sports. Um, we might see the end of American civilization first. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's weird though that there there are sort of these like sterling example these counter examples. It feels and this is like forgive me for like the tinfoil hat nature of this and I've I've shared this theory um, on this podcast before, but like it feels like in the last year or so, or even in just this off season, the big contracts that have been given out are almost like carrots that are being dangled to the people who are complaining that owners are being so flagrantly anti-labor. It's like, how can we be anti-labor if we're giving Garrett Cole $324 million? How can we be anti-labor if we're giving Bryce Harper $300 million and they're signing for such these long deals? It's weird to me that those guys even ended up getting signed for what they were. I mean, is that just like that they are once in a generation talents that they just came up at the exact right time? I, it's sort of weird that we've backslid a little bit in this off season and I can't really understand why like it all happened in one week. It all happened in the winter meetings, but it's also happening at the same time that like these superstars are available. Or so are you saying that like it's possible that MLB's owners could have gotten together and colluded to manipulate free agency? Um cuz I'm just I'm just raising some questions, man. <laughs> I was going to say like that's happened twice in the past 35 years. So it's you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility for sure. And I think this is a PR coup for for ownership because everybody's just so dazzled in the sense of like, if you shine a bright light in somebody's eyes, like that kind of dazzled by the numbers on these contracts that they don't, they don't think about two things. One, if you look at these salaries as a, uh, as a percentage of MLB's total revenue, let alone franchise value, like based on what A-Rod was making or, or Manny Ramirez, you know, guys uh, at the turn of the century, these shouldn't be $300 million contracts. These should be five or $600 million contracts. And the other thing is, this is not where free agency is broken. The guys at the top are always going to get paid. Where free agency is broken is this used to be the carrot that was dangled at the end of you're going to have your salary depressed for four or five years of minor league service and your first six years of major league service. And at the end, you're going to get paid. And people used to get paid. And now, you know, it's where this is broken is the Phillies non-tendering Cesar uh, Cesar Hernandez and him having to take essentially a $5 million pay cut to go to the Indians. It's stuff like that. And or it's um, all the guys who have CJ Crone getting on tender stuff like that is, is where the system is not working the way it was designed to work. And that's just not as sexy as splashing Garrett Cole's uh, average annual value of his, of his contract across the, the headlines. I still, every time I feel like we have these conversations, my mind bounces back to the time that story broke about how the owners literally gave an award for which team could play the, pay the players the least. And that was just like the most blatant example of like saying the quiet part out loud, you know, like, like if you need one example of any sort of collusion, like feels like that would be it. I mean, thanks to the owners, you have dozens and dozens upon dozens more, but it feels like that very much encapsulated what their mindset was, is that you want to try and cut the corners wherever you can, because that's like, that's the goal, right? But what's the point of cutting the corners on like Mookie Betts? See, that's the part that I don't get about all of this. It's like, because that's where you the know, incentive is. Because you know, the incentive is not to, the incentive is not to win the most games because you win the most games by paying the best players so much money that they'll come and, and, and play for your team. And that's, you know, you want proof of that. Look at Mookie Betts's Red Sox from, uh, from 2018. And that, but the, the goal is not to win the World Series anymore. The goal is to, do what you can within certain financial constraints. And the other thing is it's not about winning for, you know, I don't think it's as much about winning for, I don't know how much I actually believe this, but I think there's, there might be something to, you know, Dave Dombrowski never got hailed as a genius GM, uh, even though he won everywhere he went because he won by identifying the best players and paying them tons of money. And he did, (laughs) you know, his teams did a lot of, of, uh, of clever things around the edges. You know, they built, from within, you look at, at what he did with uh, with Marlins or, or the Expos, um, and even these these Red Sox teams. Um, but that's not, you know, there's no there's no Red Sox ball 
out there on the on the show on the bookshelves. Nobody's going to make a movie about <laughs> about the 2018 Red Sox. Uh, and I think that there's when the people who run the sport, who run baseball operations for the most part, they're not, they used to be jocks and jocks for all their other faults care about winning. And now <laughs> they're McKinsey consultants and investment bankers. And yeah. God knows what the fuck those guys value. And, but it's, you know, they value winning, but they value Grift. winning under certain parameters. Yeah. Right. But it seems like to me though, you could value the bottom line, right? And still think that it's a positive investment to invest $450 million in Mookie Betts. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous to say, but don't don't they know that too? Like, don't they know that by keeping Mookie Betts on the team culturally, that there's a larger impact over the time of his contract that, that will then net the Red Sox more money in the aggregate than if they just let him walk and piss off a bunch of fans who then refuse to buy a jersey in the future because that they're just going to trade away your brightest young star in a generation. There's no like disincentive from from fans because so little of the league's revenue comes from attendance and and uh, and merchandise sales. It's all locked into to TV contracts now. It's not all yeah. locked into TV contracts. And I mean, and Boston is probably the worst possible example because people will show up there no matter what. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I I think like you know Heim Bloom who. Uh, who just took over the Red Sox is a smart guy. And I think if, you know, if you gave him $35 million a year and said, Hey, you could spend it on Mookie bets or you could spend it on X, Y, and Z other things. He'd probably spend it on Mookie bets, but I think there's a, a hard directive to get under the luxury tax threshold. And because Dave Dombrowski did, you know, I think he may, he gave Chris sale a big contract. Um, he gave, uh, Nathan Eovaldi, uh, the make good deal for, sh- for, possibly shredding his arm again during the the postseason, which I think was like the only ethical thing to do based on how it was used. Uh, just stuff like that. Like that's what they're going to use. Like bad contracts is going to be the excuse. How much of a sense do you get that the, the blame lies at the feet of owners versus GMs? And obviously like the two are inextricably linked, but I GMs are obviously always the the face of these transactions. And so when you hear about the Red Sox floating Mookie Betts, you turn to the front office and you say, you know, what the hell are you guys doing up there? How, do you have an idea of, of like how much of these issues that come up are directives from owners versus GMs basically volunteering and saying, yeah, I see what your, what your long-term goal is here. Like I'll, I'll take part in that. That's a so I think ownership sets the budget, no matter what the budget is. And it wouldn't shock me if there was I'll just say it's suspicious how after 30 years of trying to to install a salary cap, um, Major League Baseball, like pretty much every franchise in the league has just decided independently to uh to treat the luxury tax threshold like a hard salary cap. Especially um, when in <laughs> other sports there is actually a luxury cap or there's actually a salary cap and owners still ignore it. Mm-hmm. Like in basketball, Dan Gilbert spent $130 million to win a title with the Cavs because he had LeBron back there. And if, if other sports owners are ignoring uh, salary caps and baseball doesn't even have a salary cap, it seems sort of like they've all kind of handshake dealed their way to treating that as the salary cap. Yeah, and we have a word for that uh, if such a thing is actually <laughs> taking place. But so you know, that's I think that's kind of suspicious. Um, but the I think the owner sets the budget, and whether the budget actually has anything to do with uh, what the team can afford to spend and actually stay in business, which is sort of the the implied pact between team and community, and that's the the uh, you know the basis of of why they get. You know, police protect free. You know, police protection for for uh, for championship parades. If if that's lucky enough to happen, is why they get public subsidies for um, for stadiums and and all sorts of you know uh, development around the the city. Like these are civic institutions that are being run as if by Bobby Axelrod. And so, you know, I think ownership uh, sets artificially low budgetary restrictions that you know, as we've seen. When the Astros got close to a title, yeah, that went out the window, and you know we've seen this in a couple, in a couple other places. So I th- for like you two know, my, years. My no, inclination not, not to give is to, them too much credit. 
Yeah, I mean, like giving the Astros too much credit is uh, <laughs> not high on your priority list. Not right now, no. Um, <laughs> but you know, they they built their home home homegrown core, and then they supplemented when you know when they had the chance. And you know, they're I given how successful they they have been, um, and given how they've taken care of guys like Altuve, uh, who they had on just a scandalous contract uh, up until his MVP season, um, you know, I they're not the biggest problem. Uh, let's let's just put it that way. On this uh, front, when it, on this front, they are the biggest problem <laughs> on many other fronts, uh, but not on not in terms of of spending and reinvesting savings in the in the team. Um, so, but you see. Certain owners, like you've seen it in Washington, we've seen it in LA, we've seen it with the well, I guess less with the Dodgers than um, than with the Angels. Like Artie Moreno, Artie Moreno is an old school owner. You know, John Middleton with the Phillies is an old school uh, old school owner. Guys who are willing to spend to win, and uh, they're just dying out. And I think we're seeing so many of these so many of these teams are now owned by either entirely or in part by people who make. They're living, finding financial loopholes and exploiting them. And this is only going to get worse as they get more leveraged, as more minority partners come in uh, for uh, um, for cash injections. Like this is something that I think that leads me to believe that this is going to get worse, that like the debt service rules are, are just not being enforced anymore. Yeah. Uh, so this Can't is wait gonna, till Steve Cohen owns the Mets. I mean, that's just – can I just – okay, let's just have an aside <laughs> on that. Like – I don't, sure. Everybody's tr- like nobody has made more fun of the Wilpons than than I have over the past five years. Like, I don't know, man. Ever since I've been in this business, all I've done is dunk on the Wilpons, and the people who think that just because the Wilpons are going to be out of the out of ownership of, of the Mets in a certain you know in what is it five years that things are going to get better are the dumbest fucking people on the planet. <laughs> what one? <laughs> What in the past five years of of American billionaire behavior makes you think that swapping out certain shitty billionaires for other shitty billionaire, well, certain shitty multimillionaires in the Wilpons case, uh, for <laughs> for other shitty billionaires is automatically going to make things better? And also, were you not paying attention to what just happened to the Marlins? Yeah, Jeffrey Lurie was the, the the quote worst owner in baseball until the guy he sold the team to. So. It's Steve Ballmer. It's this idea that like he doesn't need to buy a team. And I heard people in in the ringer offices say this to my face and me be like, is that is that what we're doing right now? It's this idea that there's no reason for him to buy the Mets other than that he's like at his core a fan of the Mets. He wants them <laughs> to win. He doesn't think that this is a good investment. And it's like the fact that people who follow sports semi-professionally or professionally it's because he doesn't want the first line of of his obituary to be steve cohen's a fucking crook and that's that's why he's buying the team i think that's still going to be the first line of his obituary i'm hoping but i think the mets ownership will probably make it in there but i steve cohen is actually a really interesting conversation that we we tried to have at the time but the, the timing wasn't right and frankly we don't know enough about steve cohen's backroom deals to really have this conversation in full but He's buying the Mets because it's a good investment. There's there's no other reason. Steve Ballmer bought the Clippers because it was a good investment. Two billion dollars, who gives a fuck? It's like it's not ever gonna be about buying the Mets because he wants to bring a title home to fucking Queens. That's ridiculous, <laughs> dude. That's not that's not what it's about. Yeah. People who make that much money don't let a dime slip through their fingertips. That's I mean, just the the level of pure unadulterated greed to the exclusion of, of all human considerations is what it takes to get that rich. And you don't get that rich and then suddenly act another way. Like I, this is what everybody forgets about George Steinbrenner is like, he wasn't, he bought the Yankees when you didn't have to be, I don't know, like the Qatari Royal family to buy into a, a major, <laughs> buy into a major sports franchise. Like he was a guy who just loved sports and got rich enough to like the Yankees were what made him as rich as he was. Not this is an incredibly pro Steinbrenner podcast so far. <laughs> I, honestly, like this is this is a a uh, I think an illustration of how fucked up American society's become is that George Steinbrenner is now like in addition to being a total creep, uh, like the the apotheosis of the American sports center. 
Yeah, he did. Yeah. Exa- he did everything it took to win. And I don't, you know, it's having seen the other side of the the looking glass as a fan. Like, I don't know what else, what more you could want. Yeah, I mean, I I wanted to come back to your point about you know John Middleton and Artie Moreno and this sort of like dying breed. It's interesting in literally dying in many cases. Well, R.I.P. Yes. Mike Gillich. It's interesting in in light of what like we're seeing with Dave Dombrowski, who is sort of like this guy who. I think was on the fence between these two eras that we're talking about so far on this podcast is that he was like a baseball lifer. He was the GM of multiple teams. He did a really good job, but he's not of that same ethos that these new ownership, like these Steve Cohen types are really of, but he had proven that he could do it well enough to sort of cash in. And like, I don't know. I don't know if trading away all of your young stars is necessarily the most sustainable way to be a GM, but if somebody were to try to mimic Dave Dombrowski's career, they would never make it anywhere near the GM's office. They would never become an assistant GM. They would never even make it past probably their internship because the idea of being all in just is not a career path anymore for guys like Dave Dombrowski. It's more like winning on the margins. It's more, it's frankly more like the raise mentality, the hind blooms of the world. And, and we've gone you know, 30 minutes of this podcast without talking about how the Rays have contributed to this culture and the A's have contributed to this culture. I just think like, it's interesting that Dombrowski is this one leftover guy who embodies kind of all of these general ideas that we're talking about. And it's played out with his team now multiple times in the last decade. And it's even playing out further when we're talking about Mookie Betts, because the reason that the Red Sox are not going to sign Mookie Betts is because Dave Dombrowski was their GM for five years or whatever. The reason the Red Sox aren't going to sign Mookie Betts is because John Henry decided to buy Virgil Van Dyke instead of, uh, yeah, instead of re-signing Mookie Betts. Are we making this a Premier League podcast right now? No, I'm just saying like, you think he doesn't have the, you know, if you don't think Red Sox ownership has the money to pay the luxury tax, like these people own Liverpool too. And there's not a more successful, uh, sports team like maybe in the western world right now so well i think like i think what i'm trying to say is is that gms are concerned with not being fired the next year yes because they know that there is like yeah exactly and they know that there is not like a three-year leash anymore because there's an endless line of mckinsey consultants like you said 10 minutes ago who are willing to do this job and do it to the same effect that all of these other guys are like the the applicant pool for a baseball GM is higher than it's ever been. There's way more people who want to do this job and there's way more people who are frankly qualified because they have a math degree and a business degree rather than they played or they're baseball lifers and they came up as a scout, you know? Well, and the thing about this is like, they know they'll be applauded for it too. If you can win without spending money, fans will love you for that. I mean... As an Oakland A's fan. It's so weird. That's like, so it's, fucking weird. Right. And it goes back to the thing that we've said a million times on this podcast, which is, it's not your money. Why do you care? Why do you care if you, you know, win with a $60 million budget versus a $160 million? Like it, like it doesn't matter. And, and frankly, point to a team who has actually seen sustained success with that mindset. I, you 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 really can't, can you? So I, I think the reason that that fans are so eager to embrace that is everybody wants to be the underdog. I mean, we've seen this like the New England Patriots like last year said nobody believes in us, which you know that's not nobody wants us to win. Like yeah, no shit, nobody wants you to win, but like nobody believes in us is not the same as nobody likes you. Um, but we all, I mean. Bobby just said this when he said that I was being remarkably pro Steinbrenner. Like it, nobody wants to, everybody wants to think of themselves as the plucky underdog and not the big bad. Uh, and so the way you position yourself as, as the plucky underdog is to spend less money, you know, not have make these obvious mercenary moves. And so it, and because I think sports fans, I don't know if this is worse than now than it was 15 years ago, but it, it seems like there is a lack of of distance between team and self among diehard fans that like they think that X is uh, that that uh, 
being the underdog is morally superior to being the the big bad. And if the team is the underdog, it's morally superior. And if I am the team, then I am morally superior. I think there's a lot of that transference or projection going on. And so that's, I mean, that's why everybody's so eager to buy into this. It's because underdog stories are fun. Like that's the, that's why the books and movies get written about these, uh, these teams. So, well, well, it's like this idea that, spending money to win a championship isn't fair, right? And that's like, that was the criticism hurled at the Yankees for decades is that it's just like, oh, you just buy all your players. And it's like, that's no less valid of a of a move than you know trading nolan arenado for any, four any team could buy it yeah any <laughs> yes, team could exactly. buy its players it's not that the yankees are the only and i think this is there might have been a you know there was a point in baseball history where that was probably true where the yankees just yes had so much money that that was an insurmountable uh and and fans learned advantage. that point in baseball history and never moved past it though and yeah it's not the case anymore that like I think there are some situations where I- ironically, like two of the teams that I would give a pass on this are the Reds and the Brewers, who have actually been yeah. pretty active in free agency. Yeah. Uh so I The Reds and the Brewers didn't get the memo. You know, they weren't at whatever meeting happened. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean it's it's just the Midwest being so far behind the times. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I said this, you know, when I went down to to St. Pete and wrote about the Rays, like I think it's cool that they're doing all this weird unorthodox stuff. And, you know, I don't expect them to to run a $200 million payroll the way that or a $250 million payroll the way I expect like the Dodgers, Red Sox, Yankees, Phillies and Nationals, some of these other teams that actually have that that financial uh, might, you know, maybe that isn't sustainable in their market with their stadium. And that's fine. And if they get by on on cunning and guile, that's cool. But you know, not to the extent like they're the reason that one of the reasons that they're having so much trouble drawing in addition to like, I don't know, like the stadiums in sort of a, a weird spot, for instance. But, you know, I, I talked to a bunch of Rays fans who said, like, we love the team, but we get attached to these players. And as soon as they get good, they're gone. And it's hard to connect to, you know, it, and it's it, that like having been through this with David Price, with James Shields, with Carl Crawford, like they they're reluctant to get attached to, you know, Willie Adamas, for instance, or or whoever, or Blake Snell, even though he's, you know, he's signed to that long-term deal, but God knows how, you know, this is the race. Who knows how, how long he's, yeah. how much of that he's actually going to play in Tampa. Um, and so I think there is like, there's a, you know, a, a social cost to doing business that way, but the financial incentives are lined up that it's not a sufficient deterrent. And you know, this is the the hallmark of American capitalism is is that when financial incentives are aligned one way, you know, social incentives be damned. Yeah, it, it's been really interesting doing this show over the last um, like two or three years or whatever. And slowly, 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 like feeling a little slimy about sort of rooting for the Yankees, you know, because they're doing the right thing or rooting for the teams that are spending more. Cause you find yourself being like, I like what all of these teams have done because I like that. It's sort of going in the opposite direction. Like I'm weirdly like in on the Padres now. I'm weirdly like happy that the Yankees are trading for all of these players making a lot of money. And they're like, we're just going to pay it. We don't give a shit. I, I I have not reached that point. (laughs) It's not like I'm sitting there watching the games, rooting for the Yankees, but like, it, it's weird because they are doing what we're asking them to do, you know, like, like sort of your praise of Steinbrenner, but they are also the richest team. So like these inner conflicting feelings of me being like, I, I shouldn't like the richer teams or the no, richer I, people. And yeah. being I, like, I, I think we can contain multitudes, Bobby. I think you're, you're giving, <laughs> that's what I, I'm trying to express. I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit for, you know, the ability to, you can hold two seemingly contradictory, ideas in your head you know i've i've praised the 2018 red sox up and down for you know for really for i mean that's one of the best teams of the 21st century and they built it you know in terms of of scouting and development you know spending on on big time amateur prospects and draft prospects they drafted well they uh they developed well they locked you know they built their homegrown core they locked up their homegrown core they turned the team over uh so they could compete you know, they've won essentially, you know, 
in the 21st century, the Red Sox have won the World Series every five years with like 50% turnover from roster to roster. And they've been really smart about that. And they did everything right. And they ought to be applauded for that. But at the same time, fuck the, fuck Red, the Red Sox, Sox. man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you can, you can ha- hold both of those, those ideas in your head. At I'm the same good with time. multitudes because you and I, you know, we get along. I'm on one hand, I'm like, I agree with a lot of your points. But on the other hand, I'm like, you're a Phillies fan. So I understand the multitudes point. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So like good for the Yankees for resetting the market on Garrett Cole. I, I love watching him. I, he's one of my favorite players in baseball. Uh, I hope, I hope he wins 25 games next year and the rest of the Yankees pitching staff wins 17. You know, that's, that's sort of where I am. I've like, I've flirted with that idea, right? Of like, are the Yankees actually pro labor because they spend they? money exactly. <laughs> but i have to catch myself and i'm like wait Not they have, really. they have yeah. these should archaic, we make a poster like, of scott personal, they have these personal grooming requirements that come out of the 1950s yeah. like yeah i don't i don't think so yeah it's not great yeah it's not like, great you can you could grow a beard in the raf now like <laughs> <laughs> jesus garicole looks ridiculous he maybe should have just joined the raf he looks like he won't fit in the cockpit. He is huge. Uh, <laughs> so, all right. Like, I do, I do think if we're going to talk about labor and baseball, though, like we are sort of guilt. Not that I'm trying to take over the show and redirect it in a, in a certain direction, but that's exactly what I'm going to do. Uh, the Here problem is not the is not the spending at the top of the free free agent market. It's that. Uh, the incentive structure, the financial incentive structure is built so players get paid when they're veterans. Uh, and so teams are building essentially the entire roster around minimum salary pre-arb guys and invest it. And, you know, minor leaguers still get paid shit and they've capped amateur spending at every level. And that's the, that's where most of the value of major league baseball comes in and they're they managed to lock in like if you come you could sign out of dominican republic as a 16 year old and not hit free agency until like until you're 30 i mean that's half your life that's two-thirds of your baseball career and you could have no absolutely no agency over what you're making or who you're playing for and that you know that's the the heart of service time manipulation that's the the heart of why um overall free agent spending is down is that you know the we know that that most of the value doesn't come from the guys who are you know mostly on field production i should say doesn't come from guys who are uh on the free agent market or on free agent contracts and that's fine and if we redistribute that value to the younger players who are actually providing that value and there's that's that hasn't happened for two reasons one is ownership has realized that oh we could just not pay the old guys and then not pay the young guys too. Uh, and the other thing is, and I, I hope this is changing and I have some optimism that, that it is, is that the union used to be veteran run and, you know, they've thrown amateur players and minor leaguers under the bus, every opportunity they've gotten. Like they sold, it, they sold the international free agents under the bus for an extra seat on the uh, on the bus to, to spring training games in the last CBA, and that's the level of concern they've had for the next generation of players. And I think that's a you know that's a huge problem, and that rests on the MLBPA for not fighting for the next generation of of uh, of players, you know, their next generation of members. And so, you know, I don't know what it would take to get you know, free agency tied to like you hit free agency when you're 28, you know, make it tied to age, like the way it is in hockey, uh, for instance. But that's, that's the only reason to make this work to, to make the, the, the financial incentive structure and the competitive incentive structure line up again. Uh, I just have, you know, I'm, I'm not rooting for, for a strike by any means. Cause I mean, I don't want to see people put out of work, but I mean, it might take, some total reimagining of the of the the system and i don't know like i don't know how how the players generate the leverage to do that if they even had the willpower that feels like that's one of the why most it's so radical, pessimistic yeah i mean i'm pretty pessimistic about that too but that feels like one of the most radical things that the, the union could do but also like one of the only things worth changing like one of the one of the only 
demonstrable differences that they could even make in the next contract that fixes the problem or it doesn't fix I mean, the problem but it addresses the problem yes and, exactly and tweaking the the qualifying offer rules just it doesn't matter like in in the grand scheme of things and who that affects and i think you know and i was guilty of this you know in my reading of the last cba because i thought that that uh the changes to the qualifying offer rules and and some of the and the the rising luxury tax would encourage free agent spending certainly at the top and you know i was short-sighted to to think that um that that was one going to happen too that it was going to matter because that's not the people who are getting screwed are the people at the bottom of the pyramid, which I know comes as a giant galloping <laughs> shock to you guys. But, you know, it just... But also, so that, that's, feels like, that feels like one of the hardest ideas to win on in public discourse, at least. Because, right, but, like, the owners are never going to admit that. They're nope. going to use all of their PR leverage power against that. Yep. And it's going to feel like a really radical thing for baseball players to ask for, especially because fans don't want to learn about all this stuff they don't want to talk about all of this stuff and in their lives as as workers wherever they work like they they do get better in their 30s they do get better the older they get it does make sense to them that you should be rewarded when you become a veteran but in baseball it's completely the opposite and then there's the non you know the non-trivial plurality of the american adult public who is fuck you get mine or it was hard or fuck you got mine or it was hard for me so it ought to be hard for you and i think that's you know, you asked, when will this change? And, uh, you know, there's a reason I said I'm going to die before it does, because it's just you look at it like this and it's such a huge obstacle that I don't see. I mean, I don't see a path to winning on this, even if if the players, um, even if they they saw it, this kind of paradigm shift like that's not going to happen in the next CBA. It's going to require years and years of losing by less bit by bit and then eventually turning the tide and it's, it's going to take forever even if we do start moving in the right direction well and and the thing about it is like i i like i hate to say this but but there are times when i can like see like how fans how ca- more casual fans maybe have arrived at the perspective that they have because they're like look it's a bunch of millionaires and it's a bunch of billionaires who, what the hell do I care if Mike Moustakis gets a, gets a one year, $8 million deal, or he gets, you know, $70 million. Like he's going to be fine either way. And while it's obviously a lot more complicated than that, I, I get that when you're just going to the ballpark and watching the games, you're like, completely understandable. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I, I, you just want to watch them play and it's, it's tough. It's tough to like get around that fact. And so here's, I don't know, as somebody who's spent the last five years writing about this in, in some detail, like the way I get it or the way I try to get around it and fuck knows if, if this has actually been successful, if I've actually changed anybody's <laughs> mind, but is to say, this is what your boss is doing to you. Take off two zeros and, you know, do you work in a bank or in an accounting firm or this is what your boss is doing to you? Yeah. Um. And so, you know, I, I think that's the way I framed it. Um, and like I said, I don't know if that's actually uh, turned, you know, that like, because in the grand scheme of things, I don't give a shit what Mike Moustakis gets paid either. Uh, but it's an it's a concrete example of it's what public. it's like to be. And it's public and the math is all there and you could do it for yourself. And it's a concrete example of what it's like to be a worker in the u.s in the 20 you know 2020s now but this is you know how effective that is who knows and i think the players are actually they're better at at messaging now than i thought they were going to become you see that you know some guys they get you know even there there there's some like horrifying right-wing baseball personalities who get a hundred percent the value of a labor union because of 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 what you know that worker solidarity's done for them, and they understand they really hammer it home, and they're able to to articulate it plainly. And you know, there's other guys. You know, Colin McHugh is is a guy who's really um really out in front of this sort of thing. You know, you saw this with with Garrett Cole in his uh in his introductory press conference with the Yankees. Like, you know, nothing invoking more to Garrett Cole than that. He's yeah, I'm, it's it's not he's. 
he's always been uh, this kind of guy. Um, so they're they're getting better at this, and also there's you know the the growing support for minor league pay initiatives. They're you know yeah. with the the lawsuit, and there are people who are essentially you know ex players who are full time lobbyists, and they're giving you know, giving detailed interviews what it's like to live because they because I think your average fan assumes that well if minimum salary for a big leaguer is five hundred and eighty thousand or whatever it is now, then minor leaguers are making. Like 200 yeah yeah 200 or seventy thousand, or you know they're getting paid a white collar wage to to play a kids game and they're not no, and i they're think like that information very, very legitimately being exploited <laughs> yeah so you you know you get guys like ted berg wrote a, a really good story about this a couple years ago um usa today um you know what is it like to be a minor leaguer and live on ten thousand dollars a year how do you yeah. make it ends meet like that you know cody decker's been out in front of this um I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting Slade Heath caught a couple other guys who, you know, are who've been through this and and know what it's like and are telling that story. And, you know, I think that that they're getting better about messaging. I think, you know, as sports media gets painfully, gradually younger and more diverse, we're getting and further more exploited and further exploited ourselves. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, um we're getting a more, you know, we're getting a, a brand of, of sports writers who have more empathy than maybe the previous generation. So I, you know, it, you see the the change in messaging, but it, you know, it, it's all incremental gains. And I, you know, it's maybe I'm doing, you know, maybe I'm being sort of hysterical, but you just look at the enormousness of this problem and how slow progress is, where progress is even happening. It, you know, when when progress happens, it could be annihilated in in one stroke. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's slow and it's precarious and it's just kind of a stressful environment to to work in. And it's, you know, I say this, this is not just about baseball. This is just, you know, about trying to make a living, uh, in a, under our current economic system. Yeah. Um, F- the thing is like for every Slade Heathcott, there's like an Adam Eaton, right. Who's kind of like, well, you know, I had to, I had to struggle my way through, like we should, they they should like suffer just a little bit, you know. You should have to kind of grind it. It's like the Ben Carson man- mentality, mm-hmm. right? Like they you, they can't get too comfortable down there, otherwise you just get complacent. And yeah, like you were saying, it's not limited to baseball. Every every person who is rich today is like, well, I had to struggle, and you know, if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like you can be a millionaire too. It's like that's just fundamentally not how it works. Like, have you yeah. seen how many billionaires there are in the world? Like, if everyone could be a billionaire, they probably would be. But, but here we are. You know, Adam Eaton gets gets press, but um, he's also, I think, the minority uh, in major league. He's first of all like a legendary red ass. Um, but the, <laughs> it, there's, I think, there's a lot, and this is you know, going back to the Garrett Cole. Uh, uh, example there was uh, i forget who wrote it um might have been sam mellinger in the in the casey star uh about a year and a half ago wrote about alex gordon and whit merrifield and it, it, the importance of you know doing that sort of passing the wisdom down of the importance of of uh of the mlbpa from from player to player and how you know i think there's going to be a lot of, of solidarity you know this is the other thing though the players now, like they didn't grow up in an era of unchecked prosperity. Like, you know, I part of the, you know, one of the, the things that that radicalized me was trying to find work when I came out of college out of the recession. And, you know, if you look at how old I am, and for, I'd be on the older end of, of major league uh, players now. And so they, you know, they all know what it's like to try to scratch it out now. And I think that we're getting a smarter, more thoughtful, more empathetic brand of athlete now than we have at any point in, in history. And I think that's going to, that, that makes for better messaging for the, for the players in the union. Um, in addition to just being a good thing in general. You know, that's also something that we talked about last off season. Um, we had Emma Bachelary on who wrote a couple pieces about how baseball players were using social media to organize around that. And I think it was like, I think it was guys like Justin Verlander. I'm not really sure, but just we're sharing their experience. We're sharing wisdom like that in like Instagram posts. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that exists now makes you feel at least like it can be less backroom doorsy the way that the 
MLBPA decides what they should fight for and whether or not that should trickle down to minor leaguers and whether or not that's something they're willing to go nuclear over. But I, at the end of the day, like in a year or two or whatever, the the contract is up. Like, is that really? Is minor leaguers going to be the first thing out of their mouths? Like, I don't, no, I don't really know. Absolutely, like not. it's not because they're be. not in the union, and that's the. I mean, I wrote about this a couple years ago. Is uh, when the G League raised its its minimum salary. Uh, Another league notoriously that is run by veterans who has the the max contract for yeah you want to look at, yeah, at exactly. like how broke like how you do a broken CBA look at what Chris Paul and his buddies did in the in the last and uh, NBA CBA um, and that's the way that forever major league the MLBPA operated and I hope it's it's going to be somewhat different now um, yeah and but the like I, I looked up. It, no, nobody in the in the four major sports gets paid less than than NHL players and the minor leaguers who have the best pay working conditions benefits by leaps and bounds are minor league hockey players because they're unionized. And that's just having even that modicum of leverage has done wonders for them. And I think it would be a moral good for the MLB MLBPA to to try to uh, to unionize minor leaguers, maybe indie ballers too, but that would require them giving either in terms of attention or in terms of, of focus or like if they get that, if they try for that, maybe it costs them something that benefits them tangibly now. And I don't know, it's I don't think it's great, but you know, I understand from a from a standpoint of pure self-interest in the short term, why you'd want to do that, even if it's self-defeating in the long run. Yeah. And I, th- I think that you're right in touching on it very much being tied to like just age and kind of the, the era that you grew up in as younger people are increasingly under this thumb of late capitalism. Right. And that sentiment is going to, I think naturally, extend to to baseball players as well or even just in terms of like public sentiment i mean you know twitter is not real life etc etc but like there feels like there is this rising tide of kind of like we were saying at the beginning of the podcast like even in the last few years you have seen these conversations start to happen and people are more willing to just kind of engage with the idea that yeah maybe maybe baseball players should be making more money you know maybe minor leaguers do deserve a living wage yeah and well i mean baseball players should be making more money relatively but probably we should tax them a little higher as well (laughs) (laughs) um yeah and i I, you know i guess like you look at at guys my age, you know, think of like Buster Posey, for instance, or Justin Smoke, like they didn't come out of college scrambling for work the way I did. But, you know, I imagine they know people who did. The other thing is in the past five years or so, like everything, the deunionization and deregulation of American corporate life under in the second half of the 20th century like rolling back the gains of the of the new deal and the great society and, and a lot of post-world war ii uh reforms that helped bol- bolster the american working class that was based on the premise that if you work hard enough you know the american dream if you work hard enough then then the society will take care of you how exactly we're making this less clear by the moment but like that's the myth and that's incredibly attractive to to american voters and you know increasingly american workers until in the past i don't know 10 15 years the rich have, have just gotten so greedy they're kind of making they're blowing it up and uh you know maybe you graduate college as a top 10 pick in 2009 and you're not you know going 10 months looking you know not getting a uh a callback for an interview as you're trying to find work is like a paralegal or something, but you see the promise that you've been laid out, you know, work hard, produce, you're going to get paid on, on the free agency, you know, get paid in free agency. And then it just doesn't happen. You float from team to team on, on one year deals or minor league deals. And eventually like some baseball players are stupid, but collectively they're not, they, and they know 
when they're, you know, when they've been sold a, a bill of goods by and large. And I think it's just been so obvious the the bad faith um, with which the system they've been they that they bought into has been operated over the past five years. Like, you know, it's I imagine like it's it's very common to feel to feel hurt, to feel like you've been had. And so, you know, I think it, that's going to make things, you know, from, from a standpoint of, of organizing and keeping everybody in line, that's going to make things easier for the, the union. We, we've, we've had, we've had a Mark Twain quote, a Qatari <laughs> Roy, Royal family reference and, uh, and discussion about the rollback of the new deal. So literally the new deal, fr- frankly, you're, you're covering all the bases that we miss on the rest of our episodes. And we came into this worrying that we weren't going to be able to fill the time. The brand is right. extremely I, I strong. Such, no, like, yeah, I, I, when, when I go on other people's podcasts, all I do is talk. So that's, <laughs> that's not what you do on the MLB show. What is all of this editing that I'm doing? Well, then? occasionally I have to let Ben or, or Zach talk. I'm, that's I'm fair. contractually obliged, but you guys aren't paying me so I can do whatever I want. That's the, <laughs> you, you promised us, you promised us before this podcast started that you were going to give us all of the takes that were too hot for the ringer MLB show. I'm not going to, I'm not going to expose you to give multiple takes if you don't want to, but I this is the time. This. <laughs> you don't Here think my are. take about about Reaganomics was was hot well, enough? <laughs> I mean, I think that that was hot enough, but maybe that's like not related to the specific structure of labor in America at the moment. Okay, yeah, I actually like think a baseball I gave take. it. I, there, oh, yeah, baseball there's, take? there's baseball being played this season. It's just, nah, which is kind of stunning. Um, I don't know. You want to talk about Lance Lynn? I guess I talk about Lance Lynn all the time. On the- <laughs> no, bring it. Come on. All right. What's What's he going to do this year? It feels like it's going to be hard for him to one up himself. Oh, well, I think it's nice that the the Rangers have filled out the back end of their rotation by trading for Corey Kluber. I think that you know Lance Lynn is <laughs> he can only start twice in a playoff series, and you really need somebody to start Game Three. So that's uh, you know, I mean, what a fucking steal that trade was. Um, yeah, the I Kluber was, one. Yeah, yeah, I was on vacation when that happened. And apparently so is the Indians front office. Cause I, it's just inexplicable. Um, I think I'm, I'm actually excited for the ALS next year. Yeah. I, I am interested to see what the Rangers look like. Cause like they're acting like they're going to be frisky. Um, but I just, I mean, the Astros are so good and the A's are so good that like, that's such an uphill climb. Um, no, I, this went up on the site, I think this morning, uh, with that, like, I'm weirdly excited for the AL Central just because it's, it's been, it's more wide open than it's been in a couple of years. Uh, and it's just so unpredictable. Like there's so much variation, uh, possible for all three teams at the top. Um, I think my number one most excited for division is the NL West. Uh, cause the Dodgers have to trip up sometime and it's just so fucking weird. Like it's no, like I, I said this. I was talking to uh, Jarrett Seidler from from BP when uh, when the Arenado trade rumors broke, and I said the second most normal team in that division has been investigated for violating the Foreign Corrupt pra- Practices Act in the same <laughs> month that they won the pennant. Like that's the second most normal team in the division, and every other team in, in that division is just total clown shoes, and it's awesome. And some of them are pretty good in spite of it. So. Yeah, I you know I'm interested to see what happens in the NL West because it's going to be hilarious. Well, like it, it's all we're waiting for the other shoe to drop to see if Lindor ends up on the Dodgers because if he does or if somebody else does, like I don't really know. I feel like they can just keep on going forever. Yeah, I mean, I mean they're the best team in the. You're starting to see the Padres put it together. Like I don't, I forget who was, I was talking to about this. Like you know, I look at the Padres pitching staff for instance and, and that's that's the, the proverbial ball game for them is the starting rotation but it could be really good if, if they get Mackenzie Gore up into the big leagues towards the end of, of this year and Paddock pitches 160 innings and Garrett Richards stays healthy but like that could be a really really good rotation but there's also like a 40% chance that Zach Davies is their best starting pitcher and that's not gonna that's not gonna <laughs> cut it so you know I, this is like I hesitate to praise this, but you get a lot of teams under the current structure of free agency that have such wide variability that makes it very interesting to look at the start of the season and then, you know, all those holes 
end up revealing themselves and we get to Memorial Day and there's only nine good teams again. So, Michael, we appreciate you coming on to explain the state of labor in baseball and to throw out some NL West takes. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. This was a delight. I got to talk a lot more than I do on the Ringer MLB show. You got to talk so much. I got to meet you in person last week. Was it last? <laughs> that was very exciting. It's a it's a big week for the internal friendship of the Ringer MLB show. Well, my heart-